we take time this morning to reflect on the, the resurrection and the great encouragement that there is for those of us that have put our trust in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, most of us have had the opportunity of visiting a, a grave of somebody that we loved. And even in the best of circumstances, there is something sobering about that venture that causes us to reflect, to ponder, to approach that, that place with a sobriety, a seriousness. It's often an occasion that gives rise to a pensiveness or a serious reflection. You know, whether it's been a very recent occurrence or even in the past, there's still that, that sobriety and solemnity that, that ought to overtake us when it's coming to somebody, the tomb of somebody that we know. Last June, my wife and I were in New Jersey, and we had the opportunity of visiting the grave of her father, who went to be with the Lord five years ago. In August, my father passed away, and six weeks later, we were able to visit his cemetery, and the cemetery where he is laid in New Hampshire. There was not a stone yet that's been ordered, but has not been there. And so even six weeks later, I could see the, the cut in the, the turf, the grass where his casket had been lowered into the vault. And while I know that my dad was, is with the Lord, he was ready to go, and, and frankly, his, his mind and body had deteriorated, and so it was really a blessing in many ways. There was still an aspect of a contemplative yearning in the human heart when you approach the grave because when you come to a cemetery you're reminded of the brevity of life and the certainty of eternity if you look at the tombstones you have the different dates and you realize some people lived long full lives others very brief lives but it's the testimony that is appointed unto men once to die and after this the judgment you're reminded of eternity when we come to the scene here in Matthew 28, it, it's, a, it's a picture that exudes of, of emotion. And while the gospel accounts, all of them really provide the, the, some details of that resurrection morning, their eyewitness accounts, Matthew seems to capture the emotion in a unique way. You have the, the women coming in in sorrow. And, and then you, you find that joy. But there's, there's an evidence of a deep love. Matthew's gospel is really not presenting the account from a scholarly or analytical perspective. It focuses on the emotional reaction. And, and we find these women coming to the tomb early in the morning that what is revealed is their deep love and commitment to the Lord Jesus. I mean, these are the women who, when you compare the gospel accounts, they were there when Christ was crucified. They were the last to leave Calvary. At the end of chapter 27 here in Matthew, we find that they were there when Christ was placed in the tomb. They, they sat across from it as, as he was placed inside that, that cool stone vault. And now they're the first ones to come to the tomb. And, and while we, we really can't commend them for their faith, they weren't expecting a resurrection, they certainly are to be honored for their faithfulness, their loyalty, the, the devotion, and it is that devotion that is going to be rewarded. 
Well, the disciples are going to have to go to Galilee to see the Lord. These women are going to meet Jesus at the tomb. Matthew mentions that they meet the risen Savior. We've read these verses, and what I want us to see this morning is that when you personally experience the risen Christ, he will change your life. There's a, for those of you that are guests in the middle of your bulletin, there's an outline of what we're going to be covering this morning and, and working through that. And we will read the passage as we go, go through these points. We've already read it once, so we'll look at the verses as we get to those. But I trust that you will reflect on your spiritual life. The brevity of life, the certainty of death and eternity, and apply God's word to your life personally as we come to his tomb. This is not an account of how Jesus rose from the dead, but rather how the resurrection was revealed. In fact, each of the, the gospel accounts present different aspects of the story as you would expect from eyewitness accounts. Of the resurrection they, they describe what took place and all of them though give us certain things that are consistent there's an empty tomb the announcement that is made to the devout women and the disciples meeting the risen Christ the four scenes that we're going to see illustrate the personal experience and the change of life that takes place and I trust that, we'll, that these will allow us to examine our lives this morning. The first thing that we see is these women coming with an anticipation of sorrow. There is, there is a gloom that over, that's hanging over them. Look again at these opening verses. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. In these verses, we see the anxiety of the women as they're coming. They're coming in the pre-dawn hours. They, and when you compare the gospel accounts, they had gone out and purchased spices, but they're coming with heavy hearts. They have some unfinished business that they want to attend to. I wonder, my suspicion is they probably had a restless night, tossing and turning, maybe hoping the events of the last hours were merely a nightmare from which they would awake but now they were awake to the horrible reality of Jesus' crucifixion and his burial. They did not have confidence in the resurrection, but they had compassion. And they had courage to come. And so early in the morning, they're approaching his grave. They purchased the spices. They wanted to complete the embalming process that had been cut short because of the Sabbath day. And, and yet they wondered if they, who would help them move the stone. Mark's gospel provides some of these details. Who's going to help them? Probably not the soldiers that are guarding the tomb, but still they, they're willing to come. Yet what they feared, they never face. Why are they coming to the tomb? They're coming to anoint a corpse. They, they had lost the one that was their greatest delight and, and they could at least find some solace, some comfort, some 
peace in being near the body. So was their desire wrong? No, it was born out of a heart of gratitude. But that desire would not be met. It was, it was not going to take place that they would anoint the body because God had a different plan. He had a different purpose. And, and there are times that we want things and God says no. Are we willing to trust that his way is best? He's got different plans. And can we trust that his way is better? We, we sang, vainly they watch his bed. Jesus, my Savior. Vainly they seal the dead. It, it was futility to do what they were trying to do. But these women are coming with a heart of devotion. And what we see is this angel descends. I, I like to imagine that when the angel's foot touched the ground near that garden tomb, that that's when the earthquake took place. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that. But in my imagination, I like to think of that taking place. And we see the, the panic that comes to these soldiers. And the stone is rolled back, and, and it becomes a bench, a, a recliner for the angel to sit upon. And yet for these guards, they shook with fear. It, it, they, they are scared to death. Verse 4 is telling us that, that the, they were like dead men. I mean, these are battle-hardened men. These are men who have seen a, a lot of things in their life, and yet they tremble with fear. And there's no word of comfort for them. But there is comfort to the women. And that's the second scene that we see that takes place. It's that, that statement of hope, the explanation of the hope that they can have. Look at verse 5. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and indeed... He is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. This is a message of comfort. The angel speaks to the women, not to the guards, and, and gives this, this statement of do not be afraid. That's really the human reaction to a, an encounter with the supernatural, with an angel. And he follows up with the words, he is not here. I, I wonder if in that moment their heart began to sink. What do you mean he's not here? What, what happened? And, and yet it's followed up immediately with, he is risen. Those words brought both shock and joy. Those were words of triumph, words of victory. This is a message of confidence. The angel reinforces it, the, the lesson saying, as he said. It was a gentle reminder to them that he prophesied of this. He, he foretold of his resurrection. And then there's that wonderful invitation. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. The open tomb offers the, the validation to the statement, he's not here. It was, come and see, he's not here. The resurrection is a reality. And, and what had gripped their heart with fear, now they realize the power of the resurrection is conquering death itself. 
What a great encouragement. These women receive the comfort of the angel, and, and because of that, it, it, they get this because they were there. They wanted to be close to the Lord, and they receive a special blessing. Come and see. But the message doesn't stop there. It goes on to say, go quickly now. It's not enough for us to come and see and celebrate. We're also commissioned to go. The message doesn't stop with come and see, but it goes to go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And, and actually the message falls short if we fail to share the good news. These women are to tell Jesus' disciples that he would meet them in Galilee. Jesus had prophesied that back in Matthew 26, verse 32. The disciples weren't at the tomb, so they'll wait till Galilee to meet the Lord, but not so for the women. They're there. And then we see that third scene, the encounter that they have with our Lord Jesus Christ. What a great encouragement. Look at verse 8. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and, and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. What an amazing scene as they meet Jesus. Notice the change of the attitude that has taken place in this passage. The, the emotional whiplash from the sorrow and despondency of coming to the tomb to now the, the joy of seeing the Savior. They, they're, they're ready to leave. They're, they're going to go because they don't want to linger where the Lord isn't. And as they go, they encounter Christ. The, the joy, the, the fear, what a unique combination of, of emotions and yet really very understanding of the, the awe and yet trepidation of the realization of the power that can raise the dead. And, and to recognize this and to, to see the Lord and, and the joy of knowing that their Savior lives. And now they're going to hurry and tell the disciples. And as they're running, Jesus meets them with this, this common greeting of welcome or rejoice. And they fall at his feet and worship him. It's interesting that Matthew tells us they take hold of his feet. This is not some hallucination or aberration. They, they are clinging to the feet of the resurrected physical body of Jesus. And they worship him. They, they respond with a heart of adoration, of delight. Folks, have you ever come to the feet of Jesus? Clasped his feet, rejoicing in adoration and hope that, that he is your risen Savior? The response of worship looks to the empty tomb and responds with an open heart that falls at the feet of the Lord. It's a heart of adoration and praise. You know, there are several things in this passage that, that give us the evidences of the resurrection. And I think it's good, and I'm not going to take a lot of time to expand on this, but to see these, the num number one is the empty tomb. He is risen. Friends and foes alike acknowledge that the tomb was empty. I mean, that, that's without question. That Christ didn't need the stone removed for him to get out, but it was removed so his followers could look in. 
It was the opportunity of revealing that. And, and both believers and unbelievers at that scene acknowledged the tomb, tomb was empty. It's a testimony of the biblical witness. As he said, this is what Christ had testified. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed and raised the third day. He told them this was going to happen. The disciples didn't get it. That prophecy is repeated in Matthew 17, verse 23, Matthew 20, verse 19. Even the testimony of the false witnesses that were used to condemn Christ unwittingly spoke of the resurrection. They said, well, well, he said that he would destroy the temple and in three days he would rebuild it. That if you destroyed it, he'd rebuild it. Well, they were thinking of the physical temple. Christ was speaking of the resurrection. And John 2.22 tells us that after the resurrections, the disciples connected those dots. That when he spoke, if you destroy the temple, I will raise it in three days, they realized that was a statement of the resurrection. This is, what, this is the biblical witness. The third thing that we see is the encounter with Christ. Jesus met them. The biblical evidence of men like Peter who had denied the Lord with an oath, a promise that he did not know the Lord. Now at Pentecost, just a few days later, will stand and proclaim the gospel and end up dying as a martyr for his faith. In fact, the gospel goes forth as these disciples proclaim the truth to such a point that, that even his enemies say, these who have turned the world upside down, what would cause that? It was an encounter with the risen Christ. And folks, there are testimonies across this room this morning of lives that have been changed because of Jesus Christ. There is a personal aspect. There, there is the biblical truth, but there is a personal aspect. He lives within my heart. That my life is changed that I'm not the person I once was. There's a difference of attitude. Folks, has that taken place in your life? Are the, the, are the characteristics of the Spirit's indwelling evident to others, the love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control? That's the fruit of the Spirit. Is that in your life? It is if you've trusted Christ. It should be. Because that personal encounter with Christ changes life. Somebody has said the testimony of Christianity, Christianity is built on the fragrance of the empty tomb. It's that aroma that he is not here. Without the resurrection, we really have no Christian faith. There is no hope. 1 Corinthians 15 speaks of this. In fact, if, if there's no resurrection, I'm wasting my time and you're wasting your time for us being here this morning. We'd be better off just dismissing the service and commiserating together because 1 Corinthians 15, 19 says we are of all people most to be pitied if there is no resurrection. And so we see these evidences. And then there's a fourth one, I think, that is evident here, and that's the implausibility of the alternatives. You know, it's interesting. When people reject or resist the truth, they will find some other way to deal with it. They'll, they'll concoct fables, they'll believe lies, and we really see that illustrated in the next several verses. Look with me at verse 11. It says in verse 11, 
Now, while they were going, these are the women that are going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and they did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. The fourth scene that we see is the rejection of the truth. And, and it's an amazing story when you think about it. The, the, the story of the devotion of the women is con in contrast to the Roman guard that was also at the tomb. We see that the, at the end of chapter 27, and now we see it beginning here in verse 11. While the women are going, the guards also go. They've got a little bit of a problem. If you understand what has taken place, they, they were placed there at the tomb with a three-day assignment to make sure the body didn't disappear. In fact, in chapter 27, verses 62 and following, it informs that, that while Jesus' disciples were not anticipating the resurrection, the chief priests and the Pharisees were a little nervous. They remembered that Jesus had prophesied that he would rise again. And so they go to Pilate and they said, look, we're a little concerned because if the, the body were to disappear, then there's gonna, they're going to lie and, and it's going to be worse. And so in, in verse 64, it says they approached Pilate with a security request. They said, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day. They didn't want the disciples to steal the body and spread a lie. Now, clearly, these, these religious leaders have no understanding of the emotional state of the disciples. They weren't conjuring up some scheme to steal the body. When, when Jesus told them he would meet them in Galilee, it was after he told them that the sheep would be scattered. He said, you're going to deny me. And you're going to be scattered. And they didn't think that was going to happen, but it did. And so they've scattered, and, and they are not looking for a way to, to get the body. They're languishing in gloom. But dishonest people assume that other people are just like them. We see that in our culture, and we see that here. These chief priests, these Pharisees that had found false witnesses to condemn Jesus assume everybody else will act like they do. You know, liars expect other people to lie. And that's what you see. These are dishonest men. And, and so they're saying, well, look, we're concerned that they might try to steal the body and then they'll lie about it. And so Pilate says to them in verse 65, make the tomb secure as you know how. I'll give you the watch. I'll give you the detail. You can handle it. Now, can you imagine getting that special assignment as a Roman soldier? Your mission is to make sure a corpse stays put. I mean, seriously? You're sending a group of us to do that? Well, who are we have, having to watch out for? His disciples. You mean those guys in the garden? The, the, the best swordsman they had got an ear and that was it? And then they all ran away? 
we're, we're watching out for them? I mean, that, that's it? I mean, this probably seemed like a very easy assignment. And, and now the body is gone, and so they, they don't go back to Pilate. That's not a good idea. I mean, you've been guarding a tomb, and the body's gone, so they go to the chief priests. They go to the religious leaders because they've got a vested interest in this. Say, you know, we've got a problem. I mean, guys, really, you had one job. What happened? Well, how did the stone get moved? Well, there was this angel. Really? Now, I suspect that the, the reaction of the guards, the trauma, the, the chief priest knew that something had happened. Maybe they had felt the earthquake as well. They're all de already dealing with a, a torn veil in the temple. And so maybe they've got other things going. But these are callous soldiers. And they've been traumatized. They had become like dead men. They had observed a power that was supernatural. And, and, and they, they're here. And so the chief priests, they get the, everybody together and say, okay, we've got to come up with a story. Here it is. You fell asleep and the disciples stole the body. Like, that's the best you got? I mean, that, that, we're going to run with that? And, I mean, you know, not, and, and they go on and say, not many people are really going to hear about that, but if it does get to the governor, we'll, we'll cover for you. I mean, that, to me, that story doesn't even pass the straight face test. You know, sometimes somebody tells you something and, it, and the emotional reaction is like, you, you can't even believe they've said that. That seems to be one of those stories. His disciples stole the body? And you were sleeping? Now, now I don't know about you, but I don't sleep that well outdoors. I spent two nights at the Grand Canyon recently. It was not quality sleep. And I was on a really nice mattress pad in a warm sleeping bag. And I still woke up at 2.30 in the morning when the support staff started preparing breakfast. It really didn't take much to arouse me. And, and I, I dozed back off, but then I'd wake up when I'd hear people out by the fire. And, and I had earplugs in and a white noise app running on my iPad. I just don't sleep that well out does. Well, maybe they do this a lot. Not when your life depends on staying awake. I think that would help keep you awake. These are trained soldiers claiming that they fell asleep while 11 disciples moved a massive stone and carried out a lifeless body. I mean, there's a reason we refer to dead weight. Because it's difficult. There's a, this, a dead person can't offer assistance, and so to carry this body is not going to be easy. And these, these disciples are not some special forces group. I mean, these are fishermen and a tax collector and a political zealot. And they're going to sneak past a guard of Roman soldiers? And then they left the grave clothes. So they unwrapped the body? I mean, who's going to take time to do that? And, and besides, if these soldiers were really asleep, how do you know it was the disciples? You were sleeping. I mean, the, the story doesn't make any sense at all. Can you imagine being one of those so soldiers and walking back into the barracks and telling that story? Hey, Anthony, how'd Garden the Tomb go? What? What do you mean you lost the corpse? Seriously? 
A group of fishermen did this to you? Like, really? Man, we, we can't... Boy, don't send Brutus to guard anybody if they're mobile at all. I, I mean, I, I'm just suspecting this was probably the end of their military career. They, they got no promotions after this point. If a, if a corpse gets past you, you're, you're not advancing. That's just my thought. But they had to acknowledge the tomb was empty. And the truth is, people who will reject the Lord will concoct other stories. I mean, the, the act, their story actually proves the resurrection. Because if Jesus' body was stolen, it was either by his friends or by his enemies. And his friends had fled the scene. His enemies are the ones that are, that are trying to prevent the disappearance. And if the enemies had taken it, then it actually undermines them or show the body and prove the disciples wrong. I mean, what a way to silence the witness of the early church. And if anybody would steal the body, they're not going to take time to leave the grave clothes. Especially for a corpse that has been so brutally mistreated. To try to carry a body like that out with the wounds would, would just be a horrific situation. And Matthew shares this because that was the lie being perpetrated at that day as he says it was commonly reported among the Jews. But folks, people who reject the Lord do this. So as Pastor Dave even mentioned, they, they decided that didn't really work, so then a new theory was the swoon theory. And it was the idea of liberal theologians who said, well, Jesus hadn't actually died, he had just passed out. And then when he was placed in the, the tomb, it was that cool air that revived him, and he got out. But again, it's still absurd. That means the Roman centurion who was used to being at crucifixions didn't know that Jesus was actually dead. And after that kind of a horrific beating and crucifixion, to get out of the grave clothes and leave them in place and then move that stone and then get past the guards and escape, I mean, again, it's, it's a foolish idea. But folks, we see the same thing today. The Bible tells us that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. It's speaking of Jesus Christ. It goes on and says, All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And yet the culture in which we live say, No, God didn't really make it. Christ isn't the Creator. It was this big explosion of gases. And it's always existed, and then after billions of years, we just evolved. And so we're to believe that something came from nothing, that life came from non-life, and that complex life forms developed out of single-cell organisms, and we're supposed to believe that rather than God. It's the same absurdity of those who reject the truth. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the corruptible man and four-footed beasts and creeping things. That's what sinners do Because it's the corruption of the human heart And what we see in this story Is that one of the earliest evidences Of sinful heart is lying And it's true with, with all of us It says in Psalm 58 verse 3 That the sinners go the wrong direction From birth It says they go astray As soon as they are born Speaking lies Have you ever noticed You don't have to teach children how to lie at a very young age, they find out that if they lie about eating their vegetables, they might be able to get the cookie sooner. 
And if they lie about having picked up their toys, they can do something else they would rather do. So did you pick everything up? Yes. I can see you didn't. Now, they're not good liars, but they are liars. Who taught them that? It's part of the sin nature. In fact, John 8, 44 says, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you will do. It says he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks from his own resources, for he's a liar and the father of it. Folks, sin, the sin nature is displayed in deception. Sin is not a problem of heredity or, or of our environment or of sickness or lack of education. Sin is a heart issue. The heart is deceitful, dishonest, and desperately wicked. Say, well, yeah, but everybody does it. Yeah, there is none righteous. No, not even one. Well, I think I'm okay. Well, the Bible says if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We lie to ourselves. The truth is not in us. How do we respond to the empty tomb? Do we acknowledge it and then just kind of move away unchanged? Or, or is there a change of our lives? Have you opened your heart to the risen Christ? What do we do with this message that we see? I think there are some things that we can apply personally. The first one, if you sincerely seek Christ, you don't need to fear the future. When, when you have come to the risen tomb, when you have trusted the risen Savior, we don't have to fear the, the future because the power that raised him from the dead is the power at work in our lives. But maybe you're here and gripped by fear today. That brevity of life, the uncertainty of eternity, the, the realization it is appointed unto men once to die. In fact, Hebrews 2.15 tells us that Christ came to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject lifelong to slavery. There's a bondage that comes in the fear of death. The angel didn't come to terrify the women, but to calm their fears. You know, the closer we are to the Lord the more we receive his comfort and the more we can live in the confidence and trust that he's in control. Well, I can't control this and I can't control this, but no, but I know the one who can. Well, I want this. Maybe he won't give you what you want, but what he gives is best. They wanted to anoint a corpse. They got to hold the feet of a risen Savior. Are we willing to trust him? Secondly, when you have a personal experience with Christ, you have a responsibility to tell others the good news. The invitation, come and see, was followed with the instruction, go and tell. The Lord repeats this instruction to his, tell his brothers. And it is, it's a wonderful statement when he tells the women, go tell my brethren, my brothers. That family relationship. He says, I, I will see them in Galilee. And then at the end of Matthew, the, the last several verses, verses 16 and following, it's that commissioning that takes place as, as he's with the 11. They're in Galilee. That's what it's telling us. And, and Jesus points to, has appointed them, and then he tells them, all authority is given to me. Now, you go. Make disciples of all nations. Teaching them all things, to observe all of this, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The, the end of this is a, a commitment to the Great Commission. 
Folks, as a church, we have to have a great commitment to the Great Commission. It's a delight that we can come together today and celebrate the resurrection. But if it ends here, we haven't fulfilled what we're to do. Come and see. Go and tell. We gather for edification. We scatter for evangelism. And pray that the Lord will give us those design, divine opportunities to share the good news. That we could go to people and share the risen Savior and how people are struggling with fear and sin and discouragement and defeat. A third thing that we see is that you will be strengthened as you spend time in the presence of Christ. These ladies had a new joy. There's a new zeal. They've got a new mission. I think they probably came slowly to the tomb, but we find them running from it. You know, maybe our commitment is lacking because our devotion has grown cold. They received a blessing because of where they were. The tomb is open. Is our heart open? Paul, in writing to the church at Corinth, said, look, our, our heart is wide open to you. That, that this restriction is not because of what we're seeking to do, but it's in your emotions. Folks, are our hearts open to the Lord? And then finally, the fourth thing that we, we see is those who have not surrendered to Christ will be characterized by deception and denial. You know, one of the dangers in growing up hearing all the truth of the Christian faith, of growing up in church or a Christian home or a Christian school or, or whatever it is, is, is we can know the truth, but do we truly know the Lord? You know, do, do we lie to avoid trouble or to make ourselves look good? Maybe it's not just an outright lie. Maybe it's just coloring things, withholding or, or using words that will, will shade the meaning. Folks, if we're able to lie and not be convicted about it, or make excuses and justify it, those are not characteristics of God's children. Now, we can struggle and we can stumble and fall, but, but don't harden your heart. It says in Hebrews 4, 7, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Let's make sure that our hearts are open. The tomb is empty, but that we would have hearts that are receptive to the Lord. Because when you have personally experienced the risen Christ, it will change your life. There will be a joy that others will see. Something's different about you. There will be a change that the things you used to do, you're not going to do anymore. There will be a desire to be known as a truthful person. To show the compassion of Christ, the love of Christ. In our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods. You know, I showed you a couple of pictures of cemeteries at the beginning of the, the service where my father-in-law and my father are buried, one in New Jersey, one in New Hampshire. There were other gravestones there. And if the picture had been back further or if we had turned on the 360, you would have seen stones all over the place. And, and in every one of those cemeteries, the people who once lived are still somewhere now, either in heaven, with the Lord, or in hell. Because all of us will spend eternity somewhere. Those stones simply mark the passage of life here. The purpose of life is to prepare for eternity. It's appointed unto men once to die. And so we rejoice and celebrate the resurrection today. But have you trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? We celebrate the empty tomb. Is he your risen Lord? 
Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Have you opened your heart to the Lord? Is he your risen Savior this morning? If not, we would love to be able to take God's word and show you how this message can be yours this morning. And if he is your Savior, you've come, you see, let's go and tell and show forth the resurrection victory in Christ alone. Let's bow for prayer.